0: The Bible is filled with real people and it's for real people. We are blessed. This is from Ruth chapter three, one of my favorite stories. Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, isn't Boaz our kinsman with whose maidens you were? Look, he winnows barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you'll go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you have said I will do. She went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law told her when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. He went down and lay down at the end of the heap of grain. She came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. It happened. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And look, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered and said, I'm Ruth, your handmaiden. Therefore, spread the corner of your garment over your handmaid, for you are a redeeming kinsman. He said, Blessed are you by the Lord, my daughter. You have shown much kindness kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, Inasmuch much as you didn't follow young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do to you all that you say. For all the city my people know that you are a worthy woman. Now it is true that I am a redeeming kinsman. However, there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay this night. And it shall be in the morning that if he will perform for you the part of a redeemer, well, let him do the redeemer's part. But if he will not do the part of a redeemer for you, then I will do the part of a redeemer for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until the morning. She lay at his feet until the morning. She rose up before one could discern another. For he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Scandal. He said, Bring the cloak that is on you and hold it. She held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and she went, and he went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done to her. She said, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter will fall, for the man will not rest until he has finished the thing this day.
1: Thank you, Joe. Cold Feet and Humble Hearts Carolyn James tells of a short story by Maeve Blinky about a couple, on the eve of their big wedding. Guests and relatives had arrived from out of town. After months of planning and many dollars spent, all the details were in order. Flowers were in place. The church looked lovely. And at last, the bride had nothing to do but prepare herself. She was looking forward to a long, hot soak in the bath and a restful night of sleep. And now, this, her fiancé, sitting across from her and looking ashen-faced, fumbled for words. She could hardly believe her ears. On this very night before, he was backing out. There was nothing she could do. Words of reason, tears, pleading. He just would not go forward. To save face... She at least persuaded him to let her be the one who didn't show up for the wedding. At least save me that humiliation, she begged. Let me be the one to bolt. Relieved that she seemed to be taking it so well, the young man agreed. Under the circumstances, it was the least he could do. So the next day, as promised, he solemnly took his place at the front of the church with the best man and the pastor. The attendants all processed, and finally, the opening notes of the wedding march began to sound. The big doors opened in the back. All eyes turned to look, including his. And there she was, coming down the aisle, perfectly at ease on her father's arm and as beautiful a bride as anyone could imagine. The couple didn't discuss what happened until sometime later on their honeymoon. But the upshot was she knew him better than he knew himself. She knew. It was simply a classic case of cold feet. The experience surely put him on notice that there would be a very good chance she would outsmart him again in the future. Many centuries ago, on a threshing floor in Bethlehem, another man named Boaz got cold feet too, although the chill he felt was from the crisp night air and the sudden discovery of a hot young woman at his feet. There probably aren't words to describe his shock at the awful predicament he found himself in, and it would have been priceless to see the expression on his face. We've come to the R-rated chapter of the story of Ruth this morning, and the steamy rating is rightly deserved. This is the part we skip over when we tell our kids the story in Sabbath school. The narrator has fairly well loaded this chapter with sexual overtones to say there is a certain tension in the air is an understatement. The big question is this. Just what happened under the covers that night on the threshing floor? Naomi wants to know. We want to know. Everybody wants to know what went on between those two. And the answer to that, as we will soon discover, is more than what first meets the eye. But we have to pay careful attention to detail. Like all good thrillers, this one has a surprising plot twist we're likely to miss. This is our fourth morning together in the Bible book of Ruth. As I have told you previously, this series draws on Carolyn James' outstanding commentary, Finding God in the Margins. Has anybody purchased the book yet? Nobody. One. Okay, good. I'll tell you, you will not be disappointed with this book. In fact, if you purchase it and read it and are disappointed with it, I will buy it back from you. How's that? you got nothing to lose. It's very good scholarship and very well written. Two weeks ago, we left Ruth and Naomi in Naomi's tiny dwelling as Ruth pours out enough grain after one day gleaning in the fields to keep them from starving for the next two weeks and the promise of enough to come to keep them eating for the next year. It's a godsend, literally. Old Naomi, grieving, embittered, useless, believing that God has withdrawn His favor from her and forgotten her, she is overwhelmed by what Ruth pours out. But when Ruth reports she has gleaned in a field belonging to a man named Boaz, Naomi's eyes are opened. And for the first time in a long, long time, she sees God at work. And we witnessed the moment of God's resurrection power flowing into Naomi's ebbing life. In the pile of grain on the table, In Ruth's satisfied eyes glistening in the lamplight, Naomi recognizes God has not withdrawn from her his hesed. And you remember that term. She is still in his love, regardless of the disasters that have befallen her. And what she says at that moment is really the turning point of the whole book. At least it's the turning point in her life's experience. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. He has not abandoned her. Of course, her her circumstances haven't changed. She still grieves the loss of her husband and sons. She will to her final days. She remains a childless widow facing a tough future. But now she knows that God has not cast her aside nor discarded her. And from this point on, she is a changed person. Naomi's life will begin to blossom again as she starts to focus outward. But if you remember two weeks ago, it was not only Naomi who got a jolt of very good news that night. Ruth did, too, because now Naomi has her own surprising news to announce. Ruth... Who, who has no idea, really, about the man in whose field she had just happened upon to glean, now learns that God had been at work in her life, too, behind the scenes, providentially guiding her footsteps to that very field. How? Because Naomi, what she reveals, something Ruth would never have guessed in a hundred years. Naomi added, That man is our close relative. He— is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, it just so happened in Israel, there was a law that God had given his people that provided a way of rescue should a man fall into hard times, become poor, become, be forced to sell his land, or, or uh, and, and this is all outlined in the 25th chapter of Leviticus. Leviticus 25 really an amazing chapter in a a book that most people consider to be as dry as hot sand. If you haven't read read Leviticus 25 lately, you should do that. It just lays open the compassion that God has in His heart for marginalized people and that He would like to put in the hearts of His followers for marginalized people. According to the kinsman-redeemer law, when a man became poor, and was forced to sell his land, or even to sell himself as a slave because that literally happened in Bible times, his nearest male relative could buy him back or buy his land back for him. This ensured that a man's inheritance would always remain within the clan. The price of the property was based on the number of harvests remaining until the year of Jubilee. When all the property that had ever been sold in Israel would revert back to the family line of its original owner. This is how this is this is the third law that we need to understand here. The first law, remember, was the gleaning law. Landowners were to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that the poor could eat. Leverite marriage was the the second law. This is the law Naomi referred to in despair on the Bethlehem Road when she said, Am I going to have any more sons who could become your wives or your your husbands? The the Leverate Law centered on progeny. You remember that. A dead man's blood brother had responsibility to marry his childless widow in order to produce a son who would not only inherit the dead man's property— but would carry on the family name. It ensured that the family name would not die out. Now, this law is of no help to Naomi because the family line has stopped with Elimelech and her own sons are dead. There is no blood brother, and Naomi will have no more sons. From Naomi's point of view, the extinction of the family line is inevitable. Her family will die out. So now we come to the third law, the law of the kinsman redeemer. And the Hebrew behind this is the wonderful term goel. It means the one who rescues, the goel. There were additional responsibilities of a goel also, if you you search it out. The goel was also the avenger of blood, if you remember that term in the Old Testament. And here's where it gets a little confusing. We tend to think that the, the law of the goel is basically the same as the law of, of levirate marriage. It is not. There are some significant differences. In fact, some scholars say that other than their mutual concern for the poor and their concern that the land must remain in a family line, these two laws are really not even related. First of all, The Leverate law specified a blood brother. But the Goel didn't have to be a blood brother. He could be any close male relative—a brother, a cousin, an uncle even. So there could be any number of Goels depending on the family, as long as he was male and a close relative. In the second place, the Goel was not about preserving an heir— It was not about raising up a son to carry on the the dead man's family line. A goel acted to preserve property within the clan. It was all about the real estate. He went to bat for a male relative not because he had died, but because he'd lost his property through bad luck, hard times, something like a famine or a series of bankrupting crop failures. And in the third place, and, and this is important to remember, it was not absolutely mandatory for the Goel to step up and do what he was called to do. It would require sacrifice, and he didn't have to do it. And here's one of the details that we've got to catch to make sense of what goes on on the, thres- on the threshing floor. The kinsman-redeemer law is really of no help to Ruth and Naomi either. We've seen how the Leverite law doesn't apply because there are no more brothers for the widows to marry. The kinsman-redeemer law is really no help either. Why not? Because there are no more men. They're all gone. Ruth and Naomi are it. They're the end of the line. In Naomi's culture, land was bought and sold and held and redeemed by men, not women. So at the end of chapter 2, there is no other way to see Naomi's future and Ruth's future, no other way to see it than pretty bleak. Their little family is on its way out. Because of the generosity of Boaz, they won't starve. They will at least eat something in the coming year, but they are condemned to remain on the margins, living hand to mouth, hard scrabble lives until they die. This is their lot. And even if some good hearted Goel Redeemer was of a mind to attempt a rescue of two destitute widows, none are stepping forward, are they? The final verse of chapter 2 said, So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished. That's probably two, two and a half months. Since we already know the story, we know that in Bethlehem there are Goel redeemers for these women. There are at least two of them. But none are stepping up to the plate. None are volunteering. Nobody's, nobody's coming forward. Life looks pretty bleak. And then we come to chapter 3. By chapter 3, Naomi is reviving, reemerging from her depths of bitterness. And as she does, her thoughts began to concern themselves again with Ruth's long-term welfare. Back on the Bethlehem Road... She begged her two daughters-in-law to return to Moab. Why'd she do that? Well, certainly because she, not because she didn't love them or because she didn't need them, but because in Moab at least there was a possibility they might find some security and protection in the home of another husband, even if they were wife number two or three or four. You know, At least they might find some rest, Naomi said, as she tried to, to emancipate them. In fact, that's exactly what she had prayed for them. May you find rest in the home of another husband, she prayed. It's really their only hope of survival. Orpah returned, but of course Ruth did not. She made that awesome vow to act the part of a son to Naomi, a costly, self-sacrificing, come-what-may act that Boaz, standing in his barley field, names as an act of hesed that kind of love that freely makes it its business to look out for another person's well-being no matter the cost. Now it's Naomi's turn to do Hesed. She begins to think about what the future looks like for Ruth after she dies. Ruth will be left alone for probably many years, a foreigner, destitute, scraping away at the margins of society. So she begins to formulate a plan, and if her plan succeeds, Ruth will marry, and Naomi will at least die at peace. Verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Now, Naomi is nothing if she's not practical. And the way she sees things, the only way she can secure Ruth's future well-being is to find her a husband. She must work within the limitations of the culture. But it's complicated because under patriarchy, it's the men who make these kind of arrangements, and neither Naomi nor Ruth have a man to advocate for them. If Ruth were back in Moab, a man would do this, but she's a foreigner in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, it will require some very creative thinking, and it will be fraught with risk. Now, do you think Naomi has any particular man in mind as she's coming up with her plan? Of course she does. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Why Boaz? Is it because of the romance factor? Does Naomi know Boaz has got his eyes on Ruth already? I used to see it this way. In fact, once I taught about this very chapter and said, Boaz is a good man, but just like a lot of guys today, he's having a little trouble with the commitment factor. All right, He just couldn't get himself to, to step up to the plate. So Naomi and Ruth, they conspire together to nudge him along, to entrap him almost, but in, in a good sense. Because really, they know him better than he knows himself. They, they know he wants Ruth. And so in order uh, to, get, to, get, to, to, to get her, they will use Ruth's um, feminine attractiveness, shall we say, in order to get Mo- Boaz to make the commitment he's not bold enough to make on his own. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, then, well, maybe she settled on Boaz because she has already identified him as a goel, a rescuer. Nope, sorry, wrong again. Notice how Naomi refers to Boaz here. She says, is he not a kinsman of ours? What does she not say? She does not say kinsman redeemer here. She does not use that special word goel because Naomi knows that technically her her situation is outside the scope of that law. He's only a relative. Why Boaz then? She has selected Boaz because, number one, he's already shown himself to be a kind, generous-hearted man. Number two because of his reputation. You remember, it it is one of Hiel. He is a man of principle, of valor and courage. And, of course, he is a man of means and power and privilege. He is financially able to provide uh, the rest that Naomi seeks for Ruth. And, number three, he is a kinsman. He's a near relative. Chances are higher that he will accept than if he was just some stranger. In other words, Naomi isn't going to approach Boaz because she has any sense in which she is owed or that Boaz is legally obligated. She will approach him on the basis of mercy. She will plead for mercy. She will appeal only on the basis of the good man's proven character and generosity. And... She knows she must do it at the right time, the right place, in a private setting, in a way that will not dishonor Boaz if he declines, nor compromise Ruth's reputation if the scheme fails. Naomi outlines her plan. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. The threshing floor was a place in the open air where, where there was plenty of breeze available, and the bundles of grain were, uh, were spread out on a hard surface and trampled by animal hooves or the, the, the heavy weights of a threshing sledge or by workers with sticks beating the stalks in order to separate the grain from the husks. Then shovelfuls of the mixture of grain and husks and stalks would be thrown up into the air, where the wind would blow the lighter chaff away and the heavier grain would fall close by. Naomi gives Ruth the instructions that she is to follow. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Now some have suggested that Ruth is to dress herself as a bride— I think that may be stretching it a bit because one thing that she probably didn't bring her with her from Moab in her tiny bundle of possessions was her wedding dress. But she will at least signal that her period of mourning as a widow is over. She will dress her best. She will smell her best. She will even show that she is eligible and available for marriage. Then, Naomi says, Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. It will be a festive evening. It's the first good harvest since the end of the famine. Boaz and his harvesters will be in high spirits. He will be in a really good mood. There will be piles of grain because God has been good. The harvest has been plentiful. The man will most certainly be in a generous frame of mind. Naomi's got the perfect timing. Oh, and by the way, threshing floors did not always carry the highest reputation for ethical behavior. Did you know that? Mm. There was plenty of opportunity, not only for drunkenness, but also for licentiousness. Naomi knows this. There will be feasting and drinking, she says. But it gets worse. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Oh, Ruth, make sure you get this part right. There is no margin for error here. Nothing would blow up this caper any quicker than climbing into bed with the wrong guy. Naomi gives her final instruction. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Just lay there, Ruth, and wait. Boaz will take the lead. From there, Now, there is absolutely no doubt here that what Naomi is orchestrating is a marriage proposal. Furthermore, there is evidence suggesting that if Boaz accepts, there need not be any kind of wedding ceremony. Naomi assumes the marriage may even be consummated that evening. When Ruth returns home later and Naomi asks her, How did it go, my daughter? The literal translation there is— who are you, my daughter? In other words, have you come back as a married woman? Do you belong to him now? Now let me just ask you a question. From what you know so far, how many of you think this was kind of a risky plan? Anybody? Just kind of loaded with temptation? Any, anybody feeling a little at ease? Yeah, yeah. I think this is a very risky plan. Anybody here raise daughters? I raised two of them, all right? I had all kinds of boys showing up at my house wanting to date my girls. Before any of them left on a date, we had a kind of checklist that we went through. It went something like this. If there is any drinking going on, call me. I'll come get you. Check. If he tries to take advantage of you in any way, call me. I'll come get you. Check. If he drives more than five miles above the speed limit, call me. I'll come get you. Check. Check check all the way down you know in preparing this message i i searched my memory long and hard i cannot remember and in a single instance that i ever gave my girls any instructions like naomi gave ruth well amy just put on your most attractive looking jeans daub yourself with a little white linen go to the party where they'll be drinking and when the lights go down snuggle up next to the guy under the covers <laughs> are you kidding me What in the world is Naomi doing here? Well, actually, she's launching a rescue mission. That's what she's doing. This is not a plan to seduce a wealthy man against his will by means of feminine charm. Naomi's intentions are honorable. She launches her plan in order to secure a future for Ruth at the expense of her own. She is motivated by the same thing that she knows motivates Boaz and Ruth. Can you guess what it is? Hesed. It's hesed, the choice to spend herself for the benefit of another. This is a kingdom of God decision. And she is willing to take the risk and send Ruth into the lion's den because of two things. Number one, she knows Boaz is a man of character. He is ha'il, honorable. And so he trusts his character and he knows he will not take advantage of Ruth. And number two, she knows Ruth is a woman of character as well. Her actions will signal clearly that she is available for marriage, nothing more. Of course, it's a difficult situation. It's fraught with temptation. But the point is, God's people often face difficult situations in which they have to make a choice whether they will live to benefit themselves and get whatever they can take or whether whether they will live to bless others. Now, not many will be as loaded as this one, but they will be choices nonetheless. Will we be guided by self-interest and use the situations to advance our own positions, or will we choose to live in the kingdom of God? There was a teller at the bank. I use it back in Maine. Uh, You know that bank tellers don't make a huge salary. And it was nearing Christmas, and one day an old woman dressed in pretty humble clothes came into the bank with a bag of coins. She wanted to exchange some of them for paper so she could do some Christmas shopping. She was an old woman, but she wanted to buy some Christmas presents for her grandchildren, each one of them. She presented the teller with a bag uh, filled with about $70 worth of quarters and dimes she had set aside in years past. They were all pre-1964 quarters and dimes, which meant they were silver. But the woman didn't know what she had. The teller took the coins and counted back to her $72 in paper money. Of course, the bank teller knew what she now had. So at an opportune time, she exchanged $72 of her own paper money for the silver and loaded the coins in her purse. Nobody would have ever known except for what that woman did next. She went to a bullion dealer. She sold the silver. I think she got almost $500 for it, as I remember the article Then she called that old woman and asked her to come back to the bank. There had been a mistake, she said. Would she come back to the bank to help make a correction? And when the old woman arrived, the bank teller presented her with the cash from the sale of the silver. Every day, we face choices that require us to choose between the values of the kingdom or the values of personal gain. Most of the time, they are small choices. What we will say about somebody how we will spend our time, what we will read or listen to. But sometimes the choices are weighty. In every episode of the book of Ruth, the characters face these decisions, and we see them in every case surpass what duty, law, or custom require. Naomi emancipates her daughter's-in-law at great personal cost. Ruth takes a, takes a huge personal risk in the harvest fields. Boaz moves from the letter of what the law requires to the spirit of what it beckons him to become. These are gospel moments, glimpses of the kind of world that God envisioned at creation and that Jesus came to redeem, and the kind of world we can choose to live in." Now, Naomi's plan is risky, but not in the way we assume it is. Here's what's risky. Ruth will offer herself in marriage knowing she brings nothing of value to the table. She is destitute, yet she will approach a wealthy landowner. She has nothing that will enhance Boaz's stature in the community. And that's the basis on which marriages were negotiated, you remember. And she is barren. It's risky because Boaz is old with a wife, maybe more than one, and sons of his own. And Ruth is young. It's risky because in that culture and in that day, women never did the asking. This will be totally preposterous. Ruth is about to rend the social fabric of the culture. That's why it has to be done out of the public eye. Naomi knows that. She knows that Boaz must have an honorable way out. She will not embarrass him nor trick him into this. And... It's risky because if it fails, if Boaz does not respond, it may very well jeopardize the relationship, and they will be thrown back into the situation they were in when they first walked through the gates into Bethlehem. Everything will be riding on how Boaz responds. Naomi places extraordinary trust in him, takes a deep breath, and sends pretty Ruth scrubbed clean and smelling sweet, out into the night. Her mission is launched. Everything goes perfectly according to plan. Ruth makes her way covertly to the threshing floor. Hidden in the shadows, she watches as Boaz Boaz finishes eating and settles himself in for a good night's sleep, albeit with one eye open to guard his grain pile. By the way, The Bible says that when he went to lay down, he went to the far end of the grain pile. It's another God moment. God working behind the scenes, making sure there will be plenty of privacy the coming moment so acutely requires. Ruth waits. Weary harvesters make their way back to the village or disperse to find places to sleep on the threshing floor. Finally, all is quiet. The time has come to act. With the stealth of a cat burglar, Ruth rises and cautiously moves without making a sound to the place where Boaz lies sleeping. She uncovers his feet, lies down, and waits to see what will happen next. So far, she has followed Naomi's instructions to the letter, but that is about to change. Imagine the scene. This highly esteemed man of valor, this conscientious buttoned-down Israelite who lives in impeccable compliance with Mosaic law, this happy man sleeping contentedly under the stars after a successful harvest, feels the cool night air on his bare legs. He awakens in shock to the sight of a woman in the darkness lying at his feet. Instantly, he is fully alert and incredulous. Imagine his raspy, suddenly wide-awake question, Who are you? Her response is straightforward. I am your servant, Ruth. But if he was shocked, to to find a perfumed woman lying at his feet, imagine his surprise at what she says next. And, and, And she's not supposed to be saying anything, remember? She's just supposed to lie still, keep her mouth shut, and let Boaz take the lead she is supposed to let the visual imagery alone convey precisely the message Naomi intends to send. This is a marriage proposal. I am available. But instead of waiting for Boaz to act as Naomi told her to do, she tosses Naomi's script and follows her own. She now instructs Boaz. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, you need to understand here, this is the steamy part. This particular phrase can carry the intention of sexual readiness. Right. So what in heaven's name is she saying here? Somehow it seems like Ruth has just made a big blunder. She has mixed up the levirate Law and the Goel Law. Uh, we really don't understand what's going down. But guess who understands perfectly what's going down? It's Boaz. It's Boaz. He gets it, and he is in awe. And although he is shocked, he is certainly not speechless. Notice what he says. "'The Lord bless you, my daughter,' he replied." This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. And guess what word is lurking behind that word, kindness? Hesed. Yeah, it's Hesed. Wait a minute. This seems like a scene of seduction, and yet he is saying this Hesed that you are showing right now, right at this moment, is even greater than what you showed earlier? Oh, what on earth does he mean? Well, he means when she swore that vow to Naomi on the road to Bethlehem. He means when she challenged the letter of that gleaning law so she could gather fresh stalks right behind the harvesters so she could feed her destitute mother-in-law. What she's doing right now on the floor with Boaz is, is even more of a gospel moment than those things were. How could that possibly be? Because Ruth has taken the spirit of the Goel Redeemer law and the spirit of the Leverate marriage law, and she has melded them together, she knows exactly what she is doing. Boaz is is neither the nearest relative, nor is he Elimelech's blood brother. He is beyond the reach of the letter of the law. But Ruth is challenging him. She is saying, You're not beyond its spirit, Nor has she forgotten her costly vow. What she is doing now is battling for Naomi's future. And Boaz understands that full well, and he is awestruck. This is, without a doubt, the most surprising twist in the whole book of Ruth. And almost all the commentators you will read miss it. Maybe we are about to miss it, too. So here it is. Naomi launched a rescue mission for Ruth, only Ruth isn't being rescued as Naomi intended. Ruth has launched her own rescue mission, and the person she intends to rescue is her dead father-in-law, Elimelech, whose legacy is dying out. In an act of unparalleled faith, barren Ruth volunteers to bear a son not for herself, for Naomi. You can imagine, if nothing else, the emotional sacrifice she is putting on the altar here after trying to conceive for ten long years and failing, trying and failing, month after month after month. And yet, this is what she does, and Boaz gets it. Ruth launches her rescue mission when she tosses Naomi's instructions to the wind and her proposal to Boaz turns legal. And the wonderful irony is this. Ruth, a Moabite foreigner, has caught the spirit of what these two Mosaic laws about rescuing men are all about. And, and Boaz... Hayil Boaz, a powerful man who could simply brush her off into the night, who can consider her nothing more than a little tart, an upstart Moabite scavenging in the dumpsters, a man who could so easily take offense that a non-Israelite might have a better understanding of a Jewish law than he, or that a woman might be suggesting to him, a man, a way to live more closely to God's kingdom ideal, Boaz gets it, and he chooses to join forces with Ruth in her gutsy mission to rescue and save a dying family. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask. They will work together to subvert the culture and save the family. He will throw his considerable weight and influence behind her. Cold feet, but such a wonderful, humble heart. And Boaz seems to stand taller in our estimation each time he comes on the scene. There are lots of people who believe that if women are allowed to rise to their full potential, men will be diminished. That's what the feminists teach, but that's not God's plan. He uses his kingdom people, both men and women, working together to heal the world. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask. But wait, there's more. Listen to what he says next. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Anybody want to guess what noble Hebrew word stands behind woman of noble character? It's the word Hail. Hail. Boaz says: people around here know me as Hail, but you are every bit a woman of valor, of standing, of nobility. He acknowledges, you are my match. What a wonderful statement. What does he mean? Well, maybe it means that Boaz is rejecting the culture's value system, the way culture values women by their beauty or by their male connections or by their ability to produce sons. Maybe he values her for her character and for her radical, sacrificial love for Naomi and for her undaunted courage at taking risks to live God's ideal. Wait a minute. All the townspeople know about this? How do all the townspeople know that Ruth is Haiil? <laughs> because somebody's been talking. Who do you think it might be? My money is on Boaz. But there's a big problem now, a wrench in the gears. Her appeal to the law has changed everything. Instead of a simple marriage proposal, as Naomi had hoped, it has escalated into a legal situation. As Boaz reveals, there is a nearer Goel who has first rights to Elimelech's land and whose standing must be honored. Oh dear, what will happen now? Well, in two weeks, we'll find out. But before we sing this morning, there's one interesting little side point I'd like to ask you to think about this week. It has to do with what we pray for, and then, after we've prayed, how we act, what we do. Do you remember in chapter 1, Naomi prayed that her two girls might find rest in the home of another husband? It was her earnest prayer. And yet, when she arrived with Ruth in Bethlehem, it seemed impossible for that ever to happen. For months, they have lived through both harvest without the hope of that prayer being answered. There's no man on the horizon to make that arrangement. No volunteers stepping forward. Finally, Naomi understood God intended to use her to start the process of answering her own prayer. She came up with a plan. Think about Boaz. Boaz. In the harvest field, he offered up a prayer for Ruth. May the Lord repay you for what you have done, he prays. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That word wings in his prayer, it's the same Hebrew word that Ruth used when she said, Spread the corner of your garment, your wing over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. In other words, Ruth is saying to Boaz, you have the choice to be the beginning of the answer of your own prayer, the one you prayed for me. You could be an answer to that. And he did. He was. And what I'd like you to think about is this. How often might that be true for us? Maybe... When we pray, God is somehow able to open a way for us to participate with him in helping bring the kingdom of God a little closer using the very thing that we're praying for. In a few weeks, we're going to have a 10 days of, of prayer right here in the Squim Church and ask God to do that very thing. So I want you to be thinking about that, okay? Let's sing together
0: as we finish.